you can certainly tell a lot about a person by observing the moments before their death. That's why we consider someone's famous last words to be almost important than anything else they've said in life. But this is even more so when someone is approaching and enduring execution. We can learn a lot about Jesus by what he said and did in his final moments. We see his other person-centeredness as he spoke gently to Mary and John as they stood watching his crucifixion. We see his extraordinary grace as he forgives and accepts the criminal at his deathbed conversion. And we also see an insight into his relationship with his father as he called out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma semichthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has something happened between the father and the son? What did Jesus mean when he yelled out this so-called cry of dereliction? Has Jesus been deserted by God? Well, these four Aramaic words have formed one of Jesus' most controversial statements. It's the controversial cry that has divided theologians for centuries. Because it seems at this point in time, at three o'clock in the afternoon, something happened in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. For along with the Holy Spirit, these three persons have been in perfect relationship forever. Three persons, one God. And yet as we hear this cry, we must ask ourselves, is it possible that our atonement somehow severs the relationship between Jesus and the Father? Did the Father desert the Son? Was there a crack in the Trinity? Because at face value, that's what it sounds like. It really seems that when the father poured out his anger on his son, there was a break in their relationship. Deserted by God, man and friend. The father turned his face away. Was this a moment where for the first time in eternity there was a crack in the Trinity? Was that the case? Or perhaps, was it not the case? Was Jesus experiencing a severing in his relationship with the Father? Or maybe was something else happening? Well, as we come together this Good Friday, it's time for us to do some detective work. Our job as Easter sleuths is to try and work out exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, Eloi, Eloi, Leba, Sabachthani. Was Jesus actually deserted by the Father? Or is there something more to the picture? But before we head on this theological investigation, we've got to know why we're doing it. We're not doing this research so we can somehow satisfy our Christian curiosity. 
It's not so that we can make ourselves feel smarter or, or more spiritual. Because today's journey of discovery will give us a full screen view of the wonder of Good Friday. We'll get a big picture about what actually happened on the cross and what Jesus endured for us. It's theology and it's deeply practical and deeply personal. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look deeply into what was going through the mind of Jesus in his final moments of life. This is truly hallowed ground. We're going to see closely what he was thinking as he took upon himself the anger of the Father so that we might now be seen as his forgiven friends. For most of us in this church, we come here this morning as people who are confident in the grace of God. We have certainty for eternity because we know that Jesus paid it all for us. But some of you might not quite be there just yet. And it may even be that this morning, this Good Friday of 2021, it's the time when God's Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the wonder of the cross and that you yourself, this very moment, might find yourself forgiven by Jesus. Maybe this is the day that you'll personally know Jesus for the first time. Well, as we begin this journey, we need to start by doing some context tracing. We hear a lot about contact tracing these days, but we're going to look for the context of these words. When Jesus said them, did he make them up on the spot? Or was he quoting someone else? Well, if you were reading this in your Bibles, you'd see that there's a little letter at the end of that verse, which then points us down the bottom to a footnote. If you're looking at an electronic device, if you put your finger on it, it probably pops up with a window and it says, Psalm 22 verse 1. It seems that when Jesus said those four words in his native language, he was actually quoting the Old Testament Bible. Eloi, Eloi, Laba, Sabachthani. Jesus often did that. He often quoted the Bible when he was under great pressure. So, for example, when he was set a tested by Satan in the desert, he said to Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test, which was a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. I, I think it's a terrific reminder of how good it is to memorise bits of the Bible for ourselves because when we're under stress, we can recall God's word. When you're at a moment when you feel in a dark place and unloved, remember Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That would be a really good thing to have right there in the front of our mind at those moments, wouldn't it? And what about when you're anxious? Don't suppose any of us are ever anxious ever? Would that be right? The Apostle Paul said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your petitions to God. Philippians 4 verse 6. Even if you don't quite get it right and you've memorised it in a different version, it doesn't matter. It's so good to be able to recall those verses when the going gets tough. Jesus was going through a particularly tough time at three o'clock on the afternoon of Good Friday. 
And so he cried out from Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus, with his emotional and spiritual and physical levels at a a seriously low level, he just draws down upon his memory verses. And so he cries out to God, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It seems that he's been abandoned by the Father. But has he? Well, I'm going to suggest to you today that there's much more to what Jesus was thinking than just these four Aramaic words. And to discover that, we need to look at the psalm that has been quoted from, Psalm 22. Uh, This weekend, I'm going to lead us in an in-depth look at this remarkable psalm. It's in two parts. This morning, we're looking at the first 21 verses. And then tomorrow night at 5 o'clock and repeated on Sunday at 9, we're going to look at the rest of it. And as we see this psalm, we'll see exactly what was happening in the mind of Jesus at the cross. As we're reading the psalms, make sure you read verse 0, which is what normally has appeared at the top. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, to be sung to the tune, Doe of the Dawn. Not quite sure how that one goes. But we do know that it's of David. It's about David. It's to, for, or by David. It's Davidic. And it's right for us as we read this psalm to see that David wrote it to describe his sufferings. David wrote this psalm to describe his sufferings. David got absolutely smashed. He got put through the ringers. He had a really, really rough trot. Check it out in in 1 and 2 Samuel. You see how Saul tried to kill him. And so whether this psalm is speaking about one particular moment in David's life or or whether it's some sort of collection of all of his expressions of grief and sadness and stress and anxiety and physical anguish, whatever it is, we have a remarkable snapshot of what was going through David's mind. And the psalm starts with the sentence that Jesus quoted, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? David says to God, I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel deserted. You know what it's like to feel deserted? Maybe you went to a party with a friend and you haven't been there for very long and they've dumped you and gone off with other people and you're there on your own with nobody. Or maybe your best friend or or maybe even your spouse has deserted you. Uh, That's the kind of feeling that David's feeling about God. In his pain and his suffering, he feels like he's alone. But even in this, even if we just looked at this verse, we would see something that shows that he, he's not fully alone. He's not fully deserted. And we see it in the first two words in the English, which is put there twice. My God, my God. How does he address God? He says, my God. Not God. He says, my God. Even in his distress, God is still his God. He feels deserted, but he knows that deep down he is not. Even in his deep loneliness and distress, he knows that God remains his God. He's not really alone, even though he feels that way. 
He knows that God is still his God, even when he feels abandoned. His God is still his God, even as God brings upon him the pain. It's pretty honest, isn't it? He's happy to tell it like it is. These Psalms don't beat around the bush. The Psalms are deeply honest. And I've got to say, as I get a little bit older and longer in the tooth, I feel drawn to the Psalms in so many ways. The Psalms just seem to be this, this treasure of, of deep emotion, of, of genuine, authentic feelings. And often those emotions are centred on our feelings for God, which I think gives us permission to be really real with God. That we're allowed to tell it like it is. We can tell God how we really feel, especially when we are in the deepest dark place. When you're in a hole, don't say, God, oh, I'm fine. I'm okay here. If David can do it, and indeed Jesus can do it, then I reckon that's a license for you and me to be able to say to God, I'm in a hole and I feel like you've left me for dead. And David goes on to explain his frustration at the way that he feels God's treating him. The second half of verse 1 and verse 2. Why are you so far away when I groan for help, my God? Every day I call to you, my God, but you don't answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Where are you? What are you doing? Hello? Hello? They're deep, honest, brutally honest emotions, aren't they? And they're not only on the words, they're not only words on the lips of King David, they are words on the lips of or in the mind of Jesus. And I think this is really important as we look at what Jesus said with those four Aramaic words. And that is, I am confident that Jesus had in mind all of Psalm 22 when he spoke to the Lord. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus had in mind everything in Psalm 22. Of all the people, you wouldn't think that he'd rip a verse out of context. And so he must have been thinking about the whole chapter. And so you would say it would be right to think that Jesus felt that sense of being far away from God. It was a legitimate feeling, surely. But like David, it was only a feeling. For the truth was that God was still with him. Even as they felt far from God in their time of anguish, God had not left them behind. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. God is truly holy, and his people praise him as king. He is the true king, and he's truly holy. He's not human like you and I are. He is God, and we are not, which is a very good thing. And in their despair, David and indeed Jesus could then recognise in God not only his character but his reliability. And so they'd say in verse 4 and 5, Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. David felt a million miles away from God and yet he knew he was not really alone. Can you see that there? And surely as Jesus hung on the cross late that afternoon, feeling upon himself the anger of his father, 
the wrath of God upon his shoulders, he would be able to know this too, that God would not truly desert him, that it wasn't over. And this is important because we know that God is reliable and he's reliable because he saved our descendants. Have a look at that. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. And these ancestors failed God time and time again. It's not like you'd hold them up and say, be like them in every way. Uh-uh. And yet the Lord remained faithful to them. And how much more then, of course, than Jesus. Jesus who committed no sin. He could know that God would save him and rescued him. Jesus may have felt the deep pain of the anger of God. Surely he did. But in this he could know that God would save him and rescued him. And he knew that because God is completely reliable and he never fails to keep his promises. And I keep saying this week in, week out. If you're a regular, you'll know this. God is reliable because he's kept his promises. Check his track record, 100%. Not kind of like, well, most of the time pretty good. 100%. And if it was true back then, it's true for David and it was true for Jesus. But even though there was hope, David was still very real about his pain and his distress. Verses 6 to 8, he says, But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. He was mocked, David was. And what did they say of Jesus? Matthew 27. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. It's history repeating itself, isn't it? David was mocked. Jesus was mocked. And the experience of David matched the experience of Jesus. In fact, there are details in this psalm that we will come to that, that so accurately describe a form of punishment that was, that was popularised much later, that of crucifixion, and which just shows us that these words that were given to David a thousand years before Jesus were, were truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus could use them on his own lips. But even as they felt the mocking, as David felt that mocking, as Jesus felt that mocking, I could go on to say in verse 9, Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. David remembers his birth. You see, we expect that when someone goes into, into hospital to have a baby, we, we don't think... We're not kind of sort of saying, check your will. This might be the last time I see you. We, we expect most of the time that it's, it's very, very, very rare for a pregnancy not to end in a successful birth. It does happen. It's tragic, but it's rare. Back then, it was, it was less common that births would be so smooth. But regardless, it is a remarkable miracle, isn't it? To go from being in a womb to in a room to see that, that remarkable life coming and being born and brought into the world. And, and so David in his anguish and surely Jesus in his mind 
could recall the wonders of God's creation and his hand of providence and protection. But more than that, he also acknowledges that his knowledge of God started at birth. Right from the start, David says that he trusted in God, even as he fed from his mother's breast. And even as he was born, he knew God was his God. And of course, Jesus did as well in every way. There was never a time when Jesus was not fully united with God the Father. They've been together for eternity with the Spirit. And that continues as he hangs on the cross at this time. And because of that unity, David and indeed Jesus are able to make a request of the Father. Verse 11, Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near and no one else can help me. Again, there's that idea of of kind of des- desertion and abandonment. It's that kind of feeling, you know. It, it's, he says, you are so far away from me. God's far away, it seems, he feels, but he knows that God is indeed with him. God has not truly abandoned him. He knows he isn't truly abandoned. And so even in these hard times, God is with him. And they are hard times. Let's whiz through and see what exactly it's like. He says in verse 12, My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Uh, If you've been stuck in a paddock with angry bulls, you'll know it can be terrifying, let alone the ones that come from the lush paddocks of Bashan. We could probably, if we're doing it today, you know, the fierce bulls of Jamboree have hemmed me in. Some of the best pastoral land around, these big fat bulls. And, and David is there terrified. He's not, these are not normal bulls, these are jamboree bulls. <laughs> and it is terrifying as he is there. And doesn't just stick with the bull analogy, then switch to lions. He says, like lions, verse 13, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. This is seriously scary stuff. Uh, it wasn't literally the case that at the cross there were bulls and lions, or even for David. But you see the kind of picture language that he's using. And he goes on and he describes his own physical ailments now. And he says, My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. That's how Jesus felt too. Pure fear, pure pain. But it's not just internal. The attacks from others continue, verse 16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Don't recall that happening to David. But it's in Psalm 22. It's remarkable, isn't it? You wonder if God's people a thousand years before Jesus as they sang this psalm in the temple wanted exactly what it was that was being spoken of there. Well, we know, don't we? It's no surprise there. There's a connection, isn't it? It's a reminder of crucifixion. Tell you what, those Romans were pretty clever. They knew how to do things very, very well. And one of the things was that they knew how to humiliate and inflict pain. There would have been much easier ways to execute somebody. There were, for sure. 
but this was one that was designed to inflict lots of pain for a long time and to do it so publicly that people would see the crucifixion as a profound deterrent. Whatever you do, don't get put up in a cross. Do anything to avoid that. And yet Jesus suffered that even though he was innocent. And he continues the lament, verses 17 and 18, that it's, that's of David and it's of Jesus. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. What was it that David was talking about with that? Well, we certainly know what Jesus was talking about, don't we? Matthew 27, verse 35. After they'd nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. It's another connection right there. It's so clear, isn't it? You see, Jesus no longer had any need for those clothes because he would never be clothed again, except for his grave clothes. And they would be upon him very soon, for his life was coming to an end, and the soldiers knew it too. The time was coming when his body would be washed and would be clothed in white. He would soon be clothed in white. And so as Jesus spoke the first verse of this psalm, you can rightly see how he would have had in mind the rest of it. And you can see how much it fit in with his experience, not just the physical, but also the emotional and also the spiritual. For in this apparent hopelessness, there is deep Confident hope, verse 19. O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. David and, of course, Jesus knew that the Lord was truly their strength. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he knew that his father remained his strength. He felt abandoned, but he wasn't. He felt far away from the Lord, but he was still close. He knew that the Lord would not be far away for long, at least the way he felt. And that was his strength. Because when he was weak, he knew God was strong. Jesus, in his weakest moment, with almost nothing left in his tank, he knew that he could rely on the strength of his Lord. And so he could pray these two final verses of today's section. He could pray, save me from the sword, spare my precious life from these dogs, snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. Even as he was on empty, he could connect into the depths of resources, of love, of strength, of Ability to save, spare and snatch all from his Lord whom he trusted. At this moment of dereliction, he knew that the Father had not left him. Even as he took upon himself the wrath of the Father, he knew that the Father had not fully deserted him. The Father was still with him. Even in this moment of extreme despair... For as the Father poured out his anger upon the Son, he remained united with him. The unity of the Trinity remained intact. There wasn't a break in the Trinity. As one, 
they experience the agony of the cross. As one, they experienced the pain when Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world. God the Father was with God the Son as the wrath of God was satisfied. And friends, that is why it is just not right when people might say that the the Good Friday is some sort of act of cosmic child abuse. That God the Father punishes his unwilling son in a strange, sordid, distorted act of abuse. That doesn't hold water. What happened on Good Friday was a Trinitarian event. It was by the triune God and experienced by the triune God. And that's what makes so much sense of this verse from 2 Corinthians 5.19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. God was in Christ as he experienced the agony of the cross. And what's more, he did it for people like you and like me. For us, for our sins, in our place, bringing reconciliation. Good Friday is good. It is truly good. It's not happy, but it's good. For Jesus experienced the kind of suffering that we can only begin to imagine. And it was so bad that he felt like he'd been ripped away from his father. But it was only a feeling. For Jesus knew deep down that nothing could separate him from the love of the father. Even as he endured the anger of the father for us. For in his deepest despair, Jesus knew that God was his God. My God, my God. He felt deserted, but he remained united, even in suffering. But the psalm doesn't end right here. There are still ten more verses. We're going to look at that tomorrow night and on Sunday morning. There are ten more verses that lead us from despair to deliverance. And that's what we're going to look at. Because today we are faced again with the reality of Good Friday... Jesus, the perfect man, punished as the worst of sinners. He did it for you. He did it for me. And all of this is just a really interesting theological excursion. It's a bit of a kind of a, wow, we worked out some stuff and we got our sleuths' cats on and we, we did our discovery and got all our evidence. If that is all we have done, then we've just got more information about Jesus. But friends, it is so much more. It's merely history unless you personally trust in Jesus. For it's only as we truly say sorry for our rebellion against God that he will forgive us. And it's only as we follow Jesus as our loving ruler that he will call us his friend. Is Jesus for you just a person of history? Or is he your friend and saviour? Jesus' experience on Good Friday was one of unspeakable anguish. It was a priceless gift that cost his life. 
But if you don't do anything about it, it's just a story. And so this Easter, make sure the death of Jesus is the life of you. Let me pray.